Hello and a very warm welcome to the Trap One Podcast. I'm Mark. I'm Conrad. I'm Denise. And I'm Sai. Make yourself a nice cup of tea and settle down as we pour over the new audiobook of The Amazing World of Doctor Who, a perfect blend of stories and articles that caused quite a stir when originally released in 1979. Conrad, you're steeped in The Amazing World of Doctor Who? Wow, yes, but I wasn't ready for any of those puns. And uh, (laughs) wow, that was a a pungent brew. There you go. (laughs) Have one back. Well done, Mark. That was wow. I've missed this. Yes. So this is um, yeah, the amazing world of Doctor Who. So this is 1976. So I would have been five. Um, so this is hitting me squarely between the eyes. You know, we've just had the first two seasons of Tom Baker. I think we've just finished Seeds of Zygons to Seeds of Doom. So I am very, very. I'm five years old. I'm very excited about Doctor Who. And um, it's funny because this book. You know, obviously we're reviewing a book, but when, actually when I look back it was the stuff around it that was really exciting. The whole promotion was the really exciting thing as a kid, particularly just having these tea cards arrive, like Doctor Who on a box of Typhoo that would come every, every, you know, every few weeks. And you'd, you'd just dig through all these... Me and my sister, who's five years older than me, would just dig through all these tea bags to get to these two little Doctor Who cards at the bottom of it. And they were just... It was probably the first Doctor Who thing I had, I think... This promotion came between two Weetabix ones, so I think I might have seen a Weetabix card or so. But, um, yeah, it was really the cards that I was all after. And um, if you'll indulge me, this will probably take about the length of time it makes to, takes to make a cup of tea. So do brew up at home, and by the time you've got a tea in front of you, I'll, I'll be over this bit. But I did a bit of digging about where all this you know, the promotion stuff come from. Because like, do you guys remember when you were kids, the stuff that used to come free in packets of stuff? Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I remember my earliest memory is some plastic magic roundabout figures that came in a certain, certain kind of breakfast cereal, but I can't remember which one it was because I was really tiny, but I had a load of Ermintrudes. Oh, yeah, there's always those ones you had like too many of that, mm. that used to get. What about you, Si? What did you... Um, yeah, I remember all sorts of things, um, particularly... Um, Sort of later on, I think it was um, the Weetabix stickers with all the characters um, in the 80s. Um, so um, Crunch and all the others. Oh, and yeah. The actual Weetabix yeah. gang. The actual Weetabix oh, men. Yeah. yeah. So there were stickers. And there was um, there was certainly um, some um, stickers for Octopussy as well that I remember us collecting um, back in the days, which came with um, shredded wheat, I think, or something like that. So, yeah, I remember those. Wow. And they used to have things in crisp packets as well in the 80s. That was quite a normal thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sort of little spoky things to put on your bike and stuff like that in a little flat packet in your crisp bag. Living the dream. It was so nice because you, did, like, you didn't have to buy this stuff. Well, we didn't. Like, our parents would buy this food. We'd, <laughs> we'd just steer. You know, the whole point was the kids would steer and pester the parents to get this sort. No, this sort. So they sort of turned these kids into an army of little marketers. But, yeah, I had a little dig in. And basically, so this, um, you know, the sort of collectible cards in in products sort of generally started like as early as 1875. Um, wow. Cigarettes, of course. Cigarettes. Of course, yeah. Mm-hmm. As if they're not addictive enough, but particularly maybe it's just <laughs> to try and keep you on that particular brand. But collectible tea cards, um, this started in the States with like baseball and historical figures. Those are the sort of themes of it. Um, again, the US were way ahead of it with cereal, which they started in 1909. They started putting little toys into things. And during the Depression era, you know, having things on packets, 
um, rather than having to buy toys. That was actually a sort of win for everybody. Um, but in the UK, it was unsurprisingly tea. You know, we had the cigarettes thing going on as well. But it was in the 1920s that Typhoo started putting cards um, little promotional cards on their on their packets, and it was and this lasted for ages, and all, it was kind of very normal to um, for in tea. It was sort of normal just to have a sort of little tea card in there of something, but they used to be kind of pretty generic, like birds or flowers or aviation or you know. Yes, sort of, I remember those. I never quite saw the point, but. Yeah, it's the sort of thing you when we were when we were kids. Our your granddad always had like a little album of weird little cards and uh, plot twist. Now I'm the granddad, so, uh, <laughs> rambling on about he's on about his cards again. Um, well, I am, and I'm very proud of them. I've got them framed here. I can't go on a podcast without waving bits of merchandise around. Apparently, but these are mine. <laughs> oh, look at those! Wow. So I'm holding up my typhoon cards, which are framed, and I truly, mm. truly loved these things to, to to bits. I mean, this is my first experience of sort of merchandise or any Doctor Who things you get your hands on. Um, so this this kind of promotion came about because um, uh, in, by about the 70s, um, the most popular tea brand in the country was PG Tips that was like, you know, top of the the tea charts. I don't know what you call that. Um, so Typhoo <laughs> came along and they sort of, in, uh, they in, um, hired the services of this ad agency, market agency, very small one called Triangle, um, who um, thought, okay, we need, you need to get a more family audience, so let's just try some uh, like some tea, these tea cards things. And they went for a more entertainment-y, show-busy ones for families, which was the wonderful world of Disney in 1975. Um, and that went really, really well. Um, 1975 was also the year that Tom Baker presented Disney Time, you know, in my day, Dog 2 was diamond logos in Disney. I don't know what these kids are doing nowadays. <laughs> um, so so they'd, they'd had some success with that. And then obviously Dog 2 was now like 1976, huge hit, uh, Tom Baker for a couple of years. So they were like, okay, how about Doctor Who? But they wanted to go to sort of expand it, not just put sort of cards in there, but to have packaging, have promotions, giveaways, send-offs, to make this one a bit bigger. Um Typhoo, this was still relatively early days for this kind of stuff. So Typhoo actually needed quite a lot of convincing to put stuff on their pack. There was actually a bit of a battle with the design department saying we don't put things on the Typhoo box. The Typhoo box is the brand, we won't have it. Um, also, BBC Enterprises needed convincing that, you know, they've done stuff on cereal packets, but tea, is this going to work? But basically, when the agency showed them Chris Achilleos' beautiful artwork that we've all just been raving about before we got on mic, that kind of sealed the deal. Everyone was like, well, this the artwork's beautiful. It's really fabulous. They had a sort of novelty with these cards. They um, To make them, they called them space-aged cards because they were sort of octagonal you know, Battlestar Galactica style, there were sort of octagonal things, which costed a bit more, more money, but the ad agency said to Typhoon, no, to pay more money for it because it's got to be kind of special. Um, you could send off for a wall chart to stick the stick them all on um, and send away for a bo- this this book, which has cost a pound, um, which is made up of sort of half-old material from 1976 and some original material as well. Um, and this also book, this book, this uh, the annual also had in it... Um, some because normally in the features in Doc Two magazine in Doc Two Annual they were generally usually generic about outer space and history and all this generic stuff. But I think this is one of the first, if not the first one, that had actual features about Doctor Who and the monsters. And you're getting into more like making of Doc Two stuff that that we kind of love now. Um, but yeah, I think this. So that's my. I just love this and the, the front cover of this uh, annual 
which is the one thing I got signed by Tom Baker when I met him. I was like, I'm getting this signed by Tom Baker. Oh, this, wow. This, it's, it's funny. I sent this to Mark, sent a coffee to Mark, and um, he said, oh, wow, it's so 70s. And I was just like, <laughs> what do you mean? This is just what Doctor Who <laughs> looks like. And it is when you look, it's so like orange and psychedelic and cosmic and stuff. But honestly, when I think of Doctor Who, this is to me what Doctor Who looks like this is this is what a Doctor looks like this is what a companion looks like these are the monsters that's the logo and I hold all Doctor Who up to this standard and if it doesn't look as good as this it's not Doctor Who (laughs) (laughs) but anyway so that anyway so thank you for bearing with me I hope your tea is now ready to drink at home but that was a little whiz through promotions but this artwork is absolutely beautiful yeah well done for getting through that without saying you only get a who with Typhoo I knew someone else was. I thought it'd be Mark. Well done, Simon. Well, didn't I just take the biscuit? Um, it's going to be one of those. But Mark, you've got the actual album, haven't you? Yeah. So, so thank you very much for the copy of the book. I wasn't really aware of this until the the audio book was announced. To be honest, I, it was hadn't really kind of been on my radar or anything. So, thank you for the copy of the book. I absolutely loved it. I devoured it in an afternoon. It is, it's seven, when I say it's so 70s, like in a brilliant way, like you say, the psychedelic colours, there's a real kind of swagger to it. You can tell that, that Doctor Who is in one of its sort of periodic kind of mainstream zeitgeist periods. It's really celebrating the character, the the aliens, the whole world of it, the amazing world of it. Um, so, yeah, it's um, it, it, it's absolutely gorgeous. And so is the album, which I also need to thank, our friend and friend of the podcast, Colin Neal, for helping me find a copy of because I stood in the rain on record store day for an hour and a half. And then when I got into my local record store, somebody had already bought the only copy that they have. I thought me and Keith were the only Doctor Who fans in Carlisle, Ooh. but apparently there is a third one. Ooh. So this is, uh, this is, uh, this this could be tricky for, uh, for B&M bargains and all sorts going forward. So. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's a, it's a lovely uh, gatefold, album uh it's it's spread over two discs there's so much of the lovely artwork is, is reproduced really beautifully inside and then the the record sleeves themselves have some of the dialogue from the stories in a, in a kind of circular pattern uh you know kind of going around it it's it's yeah it's a really uh, really beautiful thing to have and uh the uh you know the production values of the of the audio book as well as we'll discuss um are really really good but it's so it's it's such a specific point in time. I feel like of 1976, the way it's like they're, they're writing. They're not quite sure where Doctor Who's going. A lot of the stories start, as, as we'll discuss, still in unit, and the Doctor in his unit lab, which is not really the fourth Doctor. But I guess you know they'd had robot terror, the Zygons, Seeds of Doom. There was maybe enough units still around that that they still thought that was going to be the case. You've got Sergeant Benton and, and the Brigadier popping up a couple of times in here and stuff, and the word regeneration isn't isn't in play yet and i meant to look up which which story introduces that and i bet si knows it's planet of the spiders is the first one so it oh, was a it? brand new term at the time but i think ah. it's very definitely a, a sort of feel that they don't quite know what to call doctor who's transmogrification into his reincarnations and all yeah. of that so all of this terminology hasn't been quite set in stone yet we're sort of still early on in in doctor who history here so i i can see why for conrad this is such a seminal book because you've got all those behind the scenes bits that were never that they talk about the radiophonic workshop no one knew about that 
and the little potted histories of all the monsters mm. was must have been incredible. I must have, I know, sort of, I had this as a sort of five year old. Um, so, um, first of all, I must say a big apology to to my old friend Russell, whose um, copy I borrowed in 1980, and then we moved house, and um, I've sadly never given it back. So, if you're a Russell who lived in Farley Hill in 19 um, ni- around 1980, and you've been missing a copy of um, the Amazing World of Doctor Who, I do have it safe. It's fine. <laughs> you can have it back any time. Just get in touch if you're listening in. Well, Si, as a special surprise, we've got Russell on the line <laughs> and his legal team. <laughs> but, um, yeah, like you, I devoured all of these things because it was easily digestible. It was short and to the point. Um, although I did notice, sort of listening to it back, um, everyone had forgotten the wheel in space actually happened. <laughs> Because that was missed out of all the Cybermen stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that was was not there. And but the one thing I I was surprised at, sort of going back to this, was that there was a there was an article about Davros, but there wasn't one about the Daleks, which seems seems yeah. quite odd. So mm. they're they're so ingrained in Doctor Who by this point, particularly. But Davros is obviously the in thing for for the kids. So. The article about Cybermen, what I really love is, is uh, obviously the writers trying to find different ways of describing them. Um, so one of them is uh, these glittering members of the monster world. But my absolute favourite one <laughs> is these cheerless space fiends, which is... <laughs> <laughs> and they're not exactly cuddly. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, to be fair, um, the Cybermen of Revenge of the Cybermen were probably foremost in their <laughs> in their minds at this point. They're definitely glittering cyber <laughs> space beams. I, I do, I do really like all the little praises about the various monsters. I mean, they were very, very well written and they were original. And I don't think I've seen them anywhere else. And if you know, you've got all the twentieth anniversary. Um, it's a celebration, et cetera, et cetera, 20 years in time and space. And it's like the same text was cut and pasted into so many different articles and books and everything. That, uh, to actually read a fresh, originally written description of a giant robot or a Cyberman or Davros or an Ice Warrior, it was brilliant. It was really refreshing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the, the, they sort of go with the cards as well, because the cards don't have any information on the back of them apart from the name of the thing. So it's nice. You can kind of you know match it up with a, you know, the little feature in the book. It's just fabulous. And did you do the quiz at the end? I didn't, although I may have done when I was a kid, mm. I think. And uh, I, I tried, I wanted to have a go at the uh, the crosswords and stuff, but they were all done. Oh. Um, whoever owned this before me had done them all. So Did they get them right? They did. Right. I detest them, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Nerds. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, and for, for young fans at the time who maybe were too young to remember the first three Doctors or the first two Doctors, this was sort of thing would have been absolutely invaluable. I know, uh, you know, as a, as a young fan myself, as soon as I got hold of it, an episode guide or anything like that, you know, I just used to sort of tear through it, just, just kind of learning about previous stories and monsters and doctors and, and regenerations and all that kind of thing. So uh, the, especially that um, the, uh, the sort of the potted history of, of the doctor himself, who is the doctor? Mm. Um, yeah. would have been, uh, yeah, I guess like gold dust, uh, you know, to, to a fan in the seventies where, you know, there's no videos or anything like that to, 
to get hold of. And, and I guess you're only three years into the target novelizations even, so there isn't even yeah. that that kind of vast resource yet. Yeah, I mean, Doctor Who was just something that was on once for 25 minutes a week. That's it. And there's no way, very few ways of glimpsing it, even hearing about it outside that. It's kind of hard to imagine now, but yeah. So yeah, everything's like that. It's so valuable. Any little scrap you could get was just so valuable. But the fact this was so colourful and arrived in boxes of tea, it's so odd. <laughs> if I smell tea now, like tea bags, I get a real Proustian rush. I can, <laughs> I it really absolutely takes me back to sort of rushing to this thing. And and the one like because we we get the, the box that had two inside them, and our thing was the sea devil. There was always a blinking sea devil. Um, and I remember, oh God, here's a terrible thing I remember. I remember there was only one you got of the Doctor that we ever had. I don't know if they put them in equally or there was a short run of it or whatever. It was just one of those things. But it seemed like we finally got one. And I'm ashamed to say, so, like, so you're ashamed of having that book. Me and my sister fought over it and we were literally pulling it between us. And guess what? Oh, Split no. Right oh, down no. the middle. And we all oh. learned a little lesson there yeah. about, sh- <laughs> about sharing. <laughs> were there tears there were tears there were tears mm-hmm. but years later i bought one off ebay and sent it to her so okay that's fine then. <laughs> yeah, it's all it's all good it's all good god the trauma this brings up <laughs> <laughs> so there are eight short stories from uh, from both the amazing world of doctor Who and the 1976 annual which have been brought vividly to life by Dan Starkey, Jeffrey Beavers, and Louise Jameson across these uh, across these stories. Well, actually, six short stories and two comic strip stories that have been uh, that have been adapted. Uh, and the first one we come to is on the slippery trail. Mm. Yes, so that is the Doctor and Sarah, and they land on this very lush green planet, and it seems like quite a nice place, but it's a bit quiet. And they notice there's a sort of half-built house, and so they go and explore that for a bit, but looks like whoever owned it left in a hurry, and then uh, they're noticing the vegetation looks a bit mangled and stuff, and so they're exploring some more. Sarah slips on something very, very slippery. The doctor finds that hilarious, and then he slips on it himself. <laughs> and it's a giant snail trail kind of a thing. And Dan Starkey, he does a brilliant Tom Baker, doesn't he? He really does. And yeah. um, Sarah says, I don't like creepy crawlies, which I'm not sure real Sarah would have actually said. I mean, she coped with the giant spiders all right, really, didn't she? And uh, so anyway, they find a cave. They have a bit of an exp- The Sarah waits outside. The doctor has a bit of an explore. And the big sluggy thing comes along. And it's not just a slug that sort of munches things. It's actually like a sort of slug hoover, if you can imagine that. And all of the leaves are just being sort of sucked off the trees. And some of the little bushes are being pulled up by their roots. And Sarah can feel that she's being drawn towards the creature as well. And so, of course, she calls for help. And the doctor, you know, turns up and gets her into the cave. And But there's some white rock in the cave and he says I want you to break all this up so they break it all up and after he's given it a little bit of a lick and so they get a hat full so he gets his hat and he fills it up with this crushed up rock and they climb up there's a sort of chimney kind of hole up to the top of the cave 
They look down at the monster, they fling all the rock salt, as it is, onto the sluggy thing, and sluggy thing, its osmotic balance is disrupted, and it dies a horrible, painful, unpleasant death, but the inhabitants of the planet are all very happy about it, and... Yeah, so reading that story, for me, um, a bit struck by the animal cruelty and was wondering how many small boys and girls would go straight out with the salt cellar to find a slug and see what would happen after reading that story. But then apparently the inhabitants of that planet hadn't figured out about salt at all anyway, and their food was horribly bland, so they could put salt on their food as well. So uh, everybody wins except the sluggy thing who became a gooey mess. So, yeah, sweet with a dash of callous, painful death. Yeah. Works it's for me. It's kind of queasy, isn't it, that when it says that a pale liquid began to ooze out of the black skin, slowly the huge body shrank to the ground like some old wrinkled balloon. It's quite kind of... Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you want to kill slugs, don't do that. You know, give them some beer, then at least they die happy. <laughs> <laughs> or do what most people do and throw them over your neighbour's garden vent. <laughs> <laughs> as a yeah, as an employee of the RHS, I cannot condone salting snails and slugs. We should should learn to that they're part of the whole ecosystem and they perform a valuable thing. It's just unfortunate that they eat everything in their way. See, that would have been a good speech for the, for the doctor to say at the end. That would have been a nice line for the doctor to end on, a compassionate moral of the tale, instead of which he says, perhaps I should go back and tell them that it's good in fish and chips as well. It could change their lives. Go off into the sunset going, oh, 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 The cheese doctor would have done that. But, okay. but my cat Rambo, he ate a caterpillar earlier this evening. Perhaps I can persuade him to eat slugs instead. Mm-hmm. Worth a try. But I mean, I think this sort of is one of those stories that emphasises the difference between TV Doctor Who and annual Doctor Who. And annual Doctor Who at this point is very much its own incredible thing. Hello, I'm Doctor Who. I think using his hat to to carry the rock salt felt quite Tom Baker, though. That was uh, yes. you mm-hmm. could sort of you could picture him doing that. But yeah, the um, yeah, like you say, the, the callous disregard for <laughs> for for uh, for alien life didn't quite ring true. <laughs> but no one was safe from the powerful suction. So well, that's right. <laughs> well, there we yes. go. Mm-hmm. And there was only one of them, so you know, genocide as well, or on the other hand, you know, you just solve your problem. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I enjoyed that one, but uh, and I am a keen gardener, but I'm also an animal lover, and sometimes those two things come into conflict. Yeah. <laughs> so then we have uh, the, the mind of Doctor Who, which is sort of a, a prelude to the, to the next story. Well, yes, now... This was a fascinating little article, and I'm still trying to get my head round a lot of this. First of all, I mean, we hear about um, Doctor Who's um, long battle against evil and injustice in the cosmos. So, I mean, we've had... Who knew about the, his subduing of the headless barbarians of Vishta? 
or his swift expulsion of the style murder squad from Magworld H. Two prime <laughs> examples of, of what the Doctor's done. I found no other references to either of those adventures. I thought someone might have snuck it into a novel somewhere, but no. Well, big finish, you'll get to them eventually. Exactly. So, yeah, if we say it a few more times. Um, but um, apparently um, the most vulnerable part of the Doctor is his brain, which um, was a bit of a surprise to me, although we are only a year and a bit away from the invisible enemy at this point where they go inside Doctor Who's brain. So, you know, maybe maybe Bob Baker and Dave Martin had read this and thought, oh, yeah, we've got an idea here. Right, let's have that. Um, but there's a lot of very philosophical thoughts for the small <laughs> children here. Um, does a Time Lord let understanding lead to compromise? Um, does a Time Lord allow compassion to fog his vision, pity to deflect his purpose? Is a Time Lord able to experience love and all its blindness? In workings as complicated, powerful and interdependent as those in Doctor Who's head, any one such spanner could cause havoc. I am... Wow. <laughs> I mean, this is, um, this is big, big concepts. <laughs> and um, so maybe we need to uh, sort of... Uh, Someone needs to come back and address this and look at the Doctor's relationship with River Song and see whether that, that one spanner has caused something to go wrong in his mind. Who knows? Um, but it acts as a little prelude to the next story, which is the psychic jungle, where the Doctor, Sarah and Harry um, undergo a ferociously frightening adventure on what looks like a young planet where they're their whole um, mental states are are, um, are under attack. So it's um, it's a very, as usual, it's 1976. It's a very weird Doctor Who adventure, this one. Um, so they land on a planet. Um, they all come out. And suddenly, everyone is just, um, Sarah says it's horrible. Harry says it's like a sauna in Kew Gardens. And suddenly... They're attacked by giant beast creatures, which turn into giant snakes, which whisk away the TARDIS. Then, but the Doctor says, we're not going to do anything. He's just sitting there sort of stoically on a tree branch, just sat there while all this is going on. But they're seeing giant snakes, and Harry's, see, uh, Harry's seeing snakes, Sarah's seeing lizards, and then suddenly there's some giant spiders there as well. But the giant spiders turn out to be friendly, which is good. Um, be, and the giant spiders tell them that they'll be safe from the Ventros. But no one knows what the Ventros is. And they seem to... And the Ventros... Uh, the, the giant spiders say they cannot get them in this cave, but Harry says they're not in a cave, they're in a jungle. And it's all a bit weird. <laughs> and the spiders have very cute little voices, don't they? They do, yeah. yeah. So Louise Jameson did a lovely voice for them, and they were, yeah, they're very cute and lovely. So reluctantly, they have to head back to the TARDIS, and the journey is a nightmare for Sarah and for Harry and the spiders, but apparently not for Doctor Who. So when he adjusts the controls, we see what is actually outside, and. It's um, Ventros, who are actually quite cute little mammals, who are not terrifying at all, and there's not much out there. 
And um, apparently, um, this planet is a psychic planet which feeds on ancestral horrors from the dawn of time that are locked away in our heads, which um, features one of the most amazing montage pictures in the whole annual, just for those of you who are following along at home, of Sarah eating an apple while surrounded by snakes, spiders, and giant birds. I'm sure there's nothing Freudian there, nothing we can read into that at all. (laughs) Um, And... um, Leads to to some um, some rampant sexism from Doctor Who himself um, about Sarah's fanciful um, fears, and Harry then who turns around and says, "Well, after all, she is a woman." <laughs> I'm surprised Sarah didn't turn around and slap him at that point, but we just get a little indignant. Uh, so um, the Doctor invents a little thing that blocks all of this out for the spiders so that they can repair their ship. They go and they can make their journey and go away. And Sarah, at the end, I think it's Sarah. It's very difficult to tell from the pictures. Um, <laughs> asked about what he saw, and he's very reluctant. He he will not say. He doesn't say anything about what he saw. And dash it all, he doesn't even remember why they came to that planet in the first place. We all have days, like and that. that's it. Yeah, yeah. So. First of all, I've got to say, this is, um, we, um, at Christmas, obviously, we did the the very expanded Paul Mars versions of the comic strips, um, which we thought were were pretty unadaptable. But this this sort of way of doing them works really well with um, Jeffrey Beaver's sort of reading out the narration and adding a few bits for the... um, obviously for the bits that you um, can't sort of pick up because you haven't got the artwork in front of you. And then sort of a dramatic sort of um, acting from Dan Starkey and Louise Jameson doing the voices. And combined with the um, excellent sound design, you sort of get a real flavour of this comic strip. And it it came to life really nicely. Yeah, the sound design is really, really nice on this. I mean, on my first listen through, I was doing some things in my garden and there's one story where there's the sound of sobbing and I actually, I turned around because I didn't expect this sound effect to be on this tape at this point and it was just, it, it's it's that good if you're a simple soul like me, I guess. Mm-hmm. I mean, what a, what a fantastic and bizarre and wonderful story. I mean, it's no wonder my brain is where it is these days. I've read these things as a young child and trying to make sense of them all. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it suffers from all the, the things that we we love in these annuals, that there's none of the characterization is quite right. Um, but it's a really good idea, I think, and, a very, and it's actually quite doctorish for the doctor to not be affected by all of these things. And for Harry and Sarah to be having a terrible time, but it, in some ways it's sort of like um, the things that Sarah's seeing in the Sontaran experiment when she's um, being tortured by Steyer and things like that. So it's all in your imagination, and you can imagine Liz Sladen going for it, having this terrible time, and Tom just sort of sat there grinning or whatever and saying, "No, it's nothing to worry about." So that sort of rung true. Um, but yeah, I've, I've always been quite fond of this one. I think it's one of those, those comic strips that's very murkily illustrated, isn't it? Like you say, it, it is quite hard to tell what's going on. And I think I interpret it slightly different to the writer who adapted it for the audio because 
Jeffrey Beaver's narration says that the snakes turned in, turn into a winged lizard, whereas the way I read it in the comic strip is that, that Harry perceives them as snakes and Sarah perceives them as winged lizard. It's not that they turn from one to the other. It's, it's that you're getting what, what each of them see. So Harry's seeing the snake. Sarah's seeing something more fanciful, as, as Doctor Who says, which is the winged lizard. But you'd almost expect Sarah to see more fanciful things because she's travelled a lot more through time and space and mm-hmm. seen a lot more fanciful things yeah, and, and has a lot more fears like that. And like you say, the bit where Sarah is eating an apple, I, I wondered if that was supposed to be Eve because it talks about um, the ancestral memory producing a collage of fear, some irrational, some not, dating back to the time when the first stirrings of awareness wakened man's brain. So I didn't know if that was supposed to be... Well, that might be why she's seen the snake, of course, as well. Yeah, and the awareness of uh, that came from eating the fruit in the Garden of Eden and all that kind of stuff, which is a bit esoteric for <laughs> kids' annual. <laughs> if I that is the case, annual 1976, anything goes. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is this is 1976. I'm five years old. I've come up with a little typhoon card, going, "Oh, what's going on here?" And I'm greeted with lines like, "Is the Doctor really able to bridge the gulf between abstraction and actuality, into which so many human dreams have fallen and died?" <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> was having a really bad time. Wow! Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the kids were going to the parents asking if their dreams were going to die in the gulf between <laughs> abstraction and reality. <laughs> and twenty years later, that was the subject of your thesis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was say, hasn't done me any harm. Here I am on a podcast talking about an audio version of an annual based on a television program. Everything's fine. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> But I, and Jeffrey Beavers is also the perfect person for this because and his voice just conjures up evil and horrible imagery straight away. I'm sure he's an absolutely lovely and wonderful man, but his voice, at the moment he starts talking, it's just like, sends shivers up your spine. Yeah, he sounds like Mr. Kipling, as if, he, if Mr. Kipling was possessed by the devil. That's what <laughs> <laughs> we saw him at a convention in Manchester, didn't we, Denise, a few yeah, years ago? Yeah, and, we met uh, him, yeah. He's, he's so warm and lovely on stage, but he can turn that voice on, and uh, you do mm. yeah, the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's quite, quite chilling. <laughs> I think he's lost a little bit of hearing. I mean, he is very elderly now, of course. So, you know, you have a conversation with him, but you're not quite sure how much is going in. But, uh, yeah, he, he was lovely to meet. And, of course, he was married to Caroline John, wasn't he? So, uh... so I think in, in answer to the question posed in uh, in the mind of Doctor Who, is, is Doctor Who's weakness is his mind and, and is there a spanner in the works? The answers are resounding no in this because he's the only one completely unaffected by the psychic atmosphere of the planet and uh, he can easily overcome it. So, uh, so yeah. We don't know if he's completely unaffected. He's just not saying, is he? Yeah, you know, that's true, yeah. There's a great, very doctory line when he talks about that the sun, the nearest sun isn't much more than a cosmic candle. I really felt like mm-hmm. that, was, uh, that was a very nice. doctorish line. Yeah, every so often there's just a nice turn of phrase in in some of these stories, and that that was really good. So next, the Doctor faces the vampires of Krellium. Right, here we go. 
Um, it was quite. It was a great one to listen to. It was quite. I've got the annual as well. It's quite hard to read because it's black print on blue, and that's quite hard <laughs> to read. Mm. So here we go. But so the TARDIS lands on a seemingly dormant planet full of crude vegetation called Krellium. Uh, the, the Doctor tells Sarah that on their last visit to the snail people of Eula, he noticed there was a disturbance in the communal will of Eula, which is a sort of psychic, psychic equilibrium that keeps the planet together. And this disturbance, he's traced it to this planet that, as a scientist, he's very keen to investigate. So they land on on Krellium, and he and a frightened but brave Sarah uh, set out into the murky, swampy planet. And they soon hear a sobbing sound that seems to be coming from Denise's garden. Um, (laughs) Which they follow to a dry patch of land with strange rows of flowers. Denise, what are you planting out there? I don't know. Um, (laughs) Anything that will grow, baby. Anything that will grow. But they find a woman crouching over the dead body of a man. And the woman looks up and she has no face. uh, (gasps) but, But communicates telepathically. And uh, that her name is Marsala, not to be confused with the curry, um, who was brought to the planet um, as a little girl and is uh, in service to this apparently dead man called Kremling, not to be be confused with the Russian seat of power. Um, She tells them that Kremling (laughs) is a vampiric entity, a vile, undead parasite that can only live by devouring the spirits of another not to be confused with Tories. He is currently... He's, a little bit of politics. He is, he is currently trying to take over the communal will of Eula to drain the life from all the whole communal snail people of Eula. Snails again. Um, um, and it, once he's got this power, he can dev- he can destroy whole planets at once. He can drain life from whole planets at once. So it's, he's, he is a vampire of Krellium. Um, but Kremlin suddenly activates all the plants and creatures um, that attack the Doctor and Sarah. They sprout up from these flowers from the ground and the Doctor and Sarah are being attacked by all these crazy life forms that Kremling is now using his uh, newfound powers to activate. The Doctor sends Sarah back to the TARDIS while he uh, persuades Masala to occupy the body of Kremling so he can't return to it. Um, meanwhile, the Doctor will fight his way back to the TARDIS and Masala sacrifices herself, finally released from this life, sort of enslaved to this vampire thing. Um, and she sets off a self-destruct machine, which destroys the whole planet as the Doctor and Sarah escape in the TARDIS. They go travel back to Eula, where they find that peace has been restored and that the communal will is rebuilding itself. Um, but within all of this sort of peace and rebuilding, the Doctor senses the spirit of a girl finally at peace, having saved a planet and herself. Oh, yeah. It's um, it's a, it's a, it's kind of, it's an interesting this one because it's, it's quite, it actually felt quite like a doctor, a sort of fourth doctor story. Obviously, it's a bit short and it's a bit bonkers, but the kind of the the sort of character from the TARDIS scene, you know, Sarah was a little bit like, oh, I don't like the look of this. But she was kind of quite, you know, she still kind of gamely go with it. Um, it was kind of quite melancholy with the girl who's sort of enslaved to this this creature. And, you know, the Doctor did have, although she sacrificed herself, it was to sort of release herself from this kind of living death. And there's a very touching moment where the Doctor asked her to remember her childhood, you know, real childhood and say, look, this isn't really living. You know, you've got a chance here to, to save the day. Um 
in terms of the and I, and I thought what was quite interesting as well is that the the Krellium, and this is where the annuals loved these. You can feel these authors having to make up all of these space <laughs> names. So, uh, so in when when uh, Masala is describing uh, Krellium, uh, one of these vampires, he said he takes over various. He's taken the form of various uh, races, including the Hemis, the Wargs, the Benethulans, and the Swazian Norbs. Uh, <laughs> Which I, I very much liked, but actually that reminded me of the Krillitane. So you know, who took over the forms and took bits of all these creatures. So maybe Krellium, Krillitane. Who knows? Let's just weave together some canon and say that that's a, that's a thing today. Um, but yeah, it felt authentic. Um, and actually, for the people who've got the book, the illustrations actually, although they're still in that kind of slightly wacky '70s style, they're pretty good and it's sort of easy to follow and quite solid. So it's not the most kind of fun and wacky story, but. Um, and yeah, snails again. I had to kind of think: Are these the same snails as the other one? But they're completely not. They're kind of tired. It was slugs and snails. Mm-hmm. Was it slugs and snails? Okay, so it wasn't the thing. Okay, good. I was worried for a minute. But yeah, so I really enjoyed it. And uh, Dan Starkey does a fantastic reading, as you say. He's, his his he leans into his, his fourth doctor's very fruity. So uh, he's on the planet of Eula. Uh, it's all lots of that. Great character. Really good characterization. Great Sarah characterization. And it's Harry Sullivan is absolutely wonderful. Oh, like, it is, yes. isn't it? Pitch really perfect. Good. Oh, that yeah. took me back. I really was like, oh, yeah, I remember this. Beautiful. Um, it's a very well read. So, yeah, I enjoyed this one. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. And uh, Like you say, the snails, slugs thing does seem to be a pro- preoccupation. I seem to remember when we, the last one we looked at, the, the one where Paul Myers had adapted the comic strips, the one where the third Doctor and Joe Grant, they're travelling back from meeting some giant snails. Oh, when... aren't they? Oh, the snail ball, yes. Yeah, they've been dancing with snails. Yeah, yeah. there's a lot. And there were giant insects in one of the other stories, weren't there, I think? It's funny that it's it's funny the things that you, the, the little things that reappear when people are just trying to think these poor staff writers are trying to think like what what's alien and what comes and there's always some reference to oh this person's got seven ears or ten eyes or <laughs> six you know and and they they exhaust all of the crazy space names lots of plants coming to life generally in Doctor Who annuals mm-hmm. um, and yeah giant insects uh, which I suppose they would have got I suppose at this period they'd have had giant maggots and giant spiders so maybe that's still in there. And the worm. Yes, yes, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, uh, sort of, when you you say it's sort of quite like what's going on on TV, you've got a vampire, which is very much a, a Hinchcliffe thing yeah. that they didn't do. Mm. So yeah. uh, it's one of those things that sort of is sort of like the things that Doctor Who was covering on TV. Yeah. And it was it was really odd because I, I listened to it. I hadn't picked up the book before I listened to the stories before I listened to it. And I I just remember I, I was listening in the car and I'm on the way to work and just had that moment where I thought, oh, remember that this is the girl with no face because there's the picture of it yeah. in the book. And, then, and I was just slightly ahead of the story and it was just like sort of reaching those those pictures out out of my head. Yeah, there she is. You say you were saying it's like a Tom Baker TV story, Conrad. That would have been an amazing cliffhanger if they came across a young girl sobbing and then she turned around, she had no face. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, you could just hear Liz Sladen gasping in the background, yeah. can't you? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, very, very much. It took me back. I got the feels of like, oh, this is what it's like. And there was nothing really taking me out of it. You know, the, especially the, char- the way it's written, the characterization of Sarah. She's, she's scared, but she's not, you know, she's still 
you know going along with it and yeah it, nothing nothing broke me out of nothing broke the spell for me in this so i, I stayed in i was yeah, really lovely and it had a sort of melancholy feel to it and was yeah it was great really enjoyed that one and then the the, the last story on the first disc is a new life uh, so this one opens with the Brigadier and Harry finding a note that the Doctor and Sarah have left to say they've gone on holiday. So, again, this is what I was saying where, you know, maybe it's kind of a little bit in flux at this point. They they thought that the the format of the John Pertwee era was maybe going to continue where the Doctor was hanging around unit as a sort of default uh, and then just kind of going off in the TARDIS occasionally, which isn't, you know, it's obviously they move further and further away from. But it's very much the fourth Doctor kind of working for unit here, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I was a bit surprised, you know, what's he doing in his lab? Because I was coming in cold to these. I never had this book, so I didn't realise that it was all going to be Tom Baker stories. So I think the doctor in the lab, and especially some of the um, some of the dialogue, sort of thought it was a, a John Pertwee story. He calls Sarah my dear twice in, in quick succession in this story, which is very John Pertwee, isn't it? And not at all Tom Baker, really. So the, the Doctor and Sarah find themselves on the homeworld of the Lexopterans, a peaceful, technologically advanced race who live on a planet with no dust. One of the previous stories we talked about on the podcast was the planet of dust. Uh, uh, for, for one Maybe of the so this, that this planet doesn't have. <laughs> this, uh, the inhabitants of the planet of dust can only dream of this place. Uh, but they find that the Doctor's looking for his old friend, Miranon, but not only can he not find Miranon, he can't find any of the Lexopterans at all. The whole place is deserted. Um, uh, every, everyone's absolutely disappeared. So they're really stumped. They look around. They can't find anything. The doctor remembers there's a secret chamber in the Senate where they said they would hide if there was ever if they were ever attacked because it was bombproof and everything. Still no sign of them. And then unusually, Sarah suggests going back to the TARDIS and she'll cook them a meal, <laughs> um, <laughs> so they can uh, so they can have a meal and think about what might have happened. Which um, yeah is uh, it's just I mean just something that never happens in Doctor. <laughs> Plus they've got the food machine and everything. But um, yeah, it did feel a little bit like padding at that point. The fact that they, yeah, they went all the way back to the TARDIS and then came back to the Senate chamber, and Sarah finds a secret room where she finds some books on plant life because she's noticed some unusual flowers and things around the place. Uh, as you say, Conrad, a bit of a preoccupation with sort of uh, plants and flowers as well in, in some of these. And a slip of paper with an equation on it solves the problem. The Lexopterans have found out how to transform themselves into plants when they're attacked. Uh, but unfortunately, they also find the dead body of the Doctor's friend, Miranon. He's had to stay behind to, uh, to activate the change uh, of everybody into plants and then there's nobody there to change them back once the invasion's over, which the, the invasions, uh, the invaders do seem to have scarpered again. Uh, so Dr. Mike's changed everyone back and they're all very grateful. Um, it it kind of reminded me of silence in the library, uh, yeah, you know, yeah, in the yeah. way that yeah. everyone's been converted and then the place is deserted and, uh, you know, they sort of can't figure out where everyone is and, and then able to, to, to bring everyone back. It, first time i listened to it really really struck me that it was like that um yeah quite quite an odd story but i felt like the the characterization was good other than uh, other than sarah saying yeah come on i'll i'll go make us some dinner <laughs> <laughs> yeah and there's a reference somewhere now who's I'm, I'm just trying to see who uh said this 
but there's a line somewhere about um I think the doctors I don't know so it says there isn't any dust on this planet it's a housewife's dream like, <laughs> oh yeah ouch, <laughs> ouch. does the doctor say that he does I think yeah. he does oh. doesn't he yeah <laughs> yeah yeah was... yes that's right the doctor says that my goodness yeah, I, I I thought the the twist with them turning into the strange flowers was was really yeah. really good and really interesting, a really great idea and a nice visual one. Particularly as um, I think sort of quite early in the story they'd commented on how odd the flowers are, and the doctor says, "Well, they weren't here the last time I was here." So you've got this little clue that if you're a smart kid, you could probably sort of think, oh, hang on, something not right here. Maybe this is a, a clue to what, what's happened. But, yeah, that, that's yeah, smart thinking. Quite, quite, yeah, good good stuff, this one. Mm-hmm. No dust, knee-deep in pollen. <laughs> <laughs> quite odd, very odd illustration. So this one was from the um, one they, they got from the 1976 book and uh i like the fact that the title a new life is in the same font as the good life which i think is quite nice detail mm. um, but then this weird just sort of it's quite a, it's very sparse big lots of uh yeah. vague space with sort of sort of photos of the brigadier a robot doctor and i have literally no idea what that is it's a picture of a hand with maybe a book i really can't see what it is the, the artwork of the 70s is a is a mystery I think that always made the stories feel even more impenetrable than they actually were. Because yeah. you spend hours just looking at the pictures thinking, what, what is that? Is that? I, yeah. I can't quite make out what, what <laughs> that's who is about. That? Yeah, yeah, or, or who, yeah, who is well, that? Who is that yeah. quite often? Or, oh, <laughs> yeah. dear, what were they thinking with that? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and only like five years later, if you think about the early you know, the sort of season 18, season 19 ones, when J&T is in there, like everyone is in their outfit. You know who everyone is. The likenesses are absolutely spot on and there is no doubt on who's who. Whereas now it's just like between frames, people will just completely change outfit or just change completely. Or, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I kind of love, I have to say. <laughs> but yeah, as a kid, it's really confusing because like, you know, it's so odd. In, in some of the pictures, it's they've, because I was, I was thinking, oh, do they just not, not really know or have any reference for people? But there are, there are, they've taken publicity shots of Tom Baker where he was with Liz Sladen and they've just switched Liz Sladen out for some approximation of a glamour model. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, or, well, <laughs> apparently it comes out, I read Paul Mars's The Annual Years a few years ago and a lot of the, um, actors in the show didn't actually give permission for their likenesses to be used. So then the artists then would have to find something. So it happens sort of fairly frequently, sort of particularly through the seventies that um, Liz Sladen um, and um, Louise Jameson didn't give permission. So they had to, to create their own versions. I suppose it must've been contractual for, person playing the doctor yeah so. mm-hmm. yeah absolutely yeah. so yeah tom probably didn't mind at all having his face splashed everywhere yeah. but maybe the other others were a bit more concerned about how their appearances mm. would be their like would be artwork. used yeah 
<laughs> well, to be fair, they've all been—they're all sort of sort of recast themselves as Farrah Fawcett, and you know, uh, <laughs> it's Caroline Monroe. Caroline Monroe there. is definitely yeah. in there. It's like the most glamorous women possible. So yeah, that, you know, and Harry, nice. goodness knows who what they well, thought Harry looked like. <laughs> I've, got some, I've got some thoughts on Harry. That'll I thought you might have. Do <laughs> <laughs> tell. Oh, oh, I will. <laughs> yeah, it's a fun story. It's a funny story. It's sort of sparse, but it's kind of this. You know, the solution's neat. Like that's well thought out, and it's you know, it's a good ending, and it's a, a mystery that gets solved pretty neatly. Mm. It's good. But poor Doctor Who's friend, though. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. His best mate's dead, but you know, other than that, it was fine. Grand day out, and Sarah made tea when we got back to Tardis. It was great. <laughs> There's a lot of visiting old friends in the annual stories, isn't there? Yeah. That is another thing, yeah. It's like the Colin Baker era. He's always visiting old friends as well, isn't he? Yeah, I think there was a review of of Megloss I saw once where he said this was like an annual story where the Doctor goes to visit an old friend that he's never mentioned that he's known forever. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, yeah, and it is exactly that kind of thing because there's a lot of that all the way through, particularly this one. I suppose it kind of gives them a bit of quick world building. To, you know, for a writer who's not familiar with it, who's trying to sort of cheat being uh, familiar with it, I suppose it's like, oh, the Doctor decided to visit an old friend and it kind of gives you a little illusion of history or, or continuity or something. Yeah, and if he's not visiting an old friend, he's going on holiday. Lots of yeah. that as well. Lots of yeah. holidays. Yeah. So speaking of holidays, uh, the, the the next story sees... Uh, uh, the Doctor, Sarah and Harry in a, in a tale called Avasta. Mm. Yes, so it's Jeffrey Beaver's reading again and he starts off with uh, the Doctor singing If I Were the Only Girl in the World and You Were the Only Boy or something like that. And um, the TARDIS is for this story, known as TARDIS. There is no definite article in this one. And... Um, so they head off. Benton makes an appearance, which was nice. You know, he drops in. But Sarah and Harry head off to um, to test a new device of the Doctor's, which, is, which he's been working on and tinkering with in his lab, which he takes in to install in the TARDIS. And it's an oscillating reverberating unit. And you know what? I think I've got one of those. (laughs) (laughs) Just edit note for Mark. Just change the rating of this this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I use it to shake my paint. No, but yes. So, um, so they don't get very far, and the TARDIS seems to be under attack. It is shaking and bumping or oscillating and reverberating. And um, they notice, they realise that there is a galleon in space. And, of course, that immediately makes me think of Enlightenment, of course, where, you know, full-on sailing-type ships in space. And um, so they materialise on the deck. Um, the Doctor heads off to explore. He says, you two stay in the TARDIS. It'll be much safer in there and, you know, stay back, uh, but nobody sees the Doctor when he first rocks up and starts wandering around. But then Sarah goes out and immediately gets captured by everybody who has turned up, and the 
the captain of the ship says, what are you doing in my <laughs> territorial confines? Which is a very, very strange phrase. But, uh, yes. Um, but Sarah, Harry comes out as well because he wants to stand with Sarah and defend her if he can. They don't talk. They don't answer any of his questions, not even name, rank, and number. And so he's like, right, you have to walk the plank. And, uh, <gasps> Love that. Yes, walking the plank in space. So, again, that calls back to the um, to the pirate planet. Yes. Because that was one of the great cliffhangers, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. The, uh, doctor having to walk the plank. I set up a plank in my back garden after that. There was a bit of a, a sort of dip in the garden, and so I got a plank and uh, and made my friends walk the plank. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Fun times. Yeah. yeah. And so Harry goes first, old girl, because he's a very brave and heroic chap, and uh, Jeffrey Beavers also does good Harry Sullivan impression. Yeah. He's got the... Um, He's got the inflection and the idioms very well. And um, so they're, they're delaying things as long as they can. You know, they can't really wait any longer. They have to jump or... But then the doctor manages to materialise the TARDIS right in front of them. So no problem at all. They get rescued because he, th- he figures he had two choices. He could conjure a cutlass out of space... I don't know how you would do that. And uh, then, but then he decides to just do a short hop and materialize in front of the plank. And so they're all rescued and it's all fine. Um, so, yeah, it was a funny little vignette kind of a story. Interesting idea, of course, which was explored in much more magnificent scale in Enlightenment, of course, which is one of my favorites. Um, yeah, there's not a lot to it, but there's some nice touches. It's lovely to see Benton, and it's lovely to see um, testing a new device, which is again very much a Pertwee trope, isn't it? He's got a he's got a new gadget that he wants to play with, either out in Pessie or uh, or in the TARDIS. But yeah, nice little tale. It's slightly odd that the Doctor insists that, that Harry comes along with them and then once they're in the TARDIS, he sort of says, you might be bored, so I'll, I'll put the uh, I'll put the scanner screen on. <laughs> yeah, I'll put the telly on for you. You think, why Why did you insist to come along? Because Harry's worried about getting in trouble for uh, for, uh, for leaving when he's on duty. Um, and then once they're in there, he says, yeah, he actually won't be very interested in this at all. Yeah. <laughs> and it does sound like Pertwee because he's like, uh, you know, that idiot Benton interrupted me at the most crucial, most crucial stage. The final assembly <laughs> is back to front. You know, you can you can hear. It. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's lucky he didn't have to reverse the polarity. But, uh... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but it's just a nice little fun tale, and everyone and as a kid, you can conjure up those images because they were sort of everywhere around that time of cutlasses and battles on a ship and having a ship in space. So all of those things were, were sort of quite familiar. So, yeah, that, that works quite nicely. But again, the pictures are wholly um, <laughs> in, in t- unintelligible for this one. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's quite a few burly men and... Um, that's about it, really. So, 
yeah, it's 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 hard to recognise any of the regulars, isn't it? <laughs> uh, but the the TARDIS sort of materialising somewhere and, and floating there to save the characters is very twenty first century yeah. TV yes, doctor, it is. isn't it? It's not something yeah. we ever saw That's... in the um, mm-hmm. in the old series. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, they're right. It's funny. In most, in nearly all of these stories, there are little echoes or something that they'll do later on. And to be honest, a galleon in space, I mean, that is, a, it's brilliant. I mean, that, mm-hmm. you know, that would, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's such an incredible image that they do later on. They, so they, they mm-hmm. do come across a lot, of, a lot of stuff in here. They do get right, um, and a lot they get wrong. And a lot they get wrong. <laughs> says Sai, preparing himself for what's to come. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> But yeah, that's a good Pertwee action swashbuckler. Mm. So the next story, so, so some would say the main event. Are we sitting comfortably? Okay, okay. <laughs> Is at this stage, as like view, listeners to this, if um, just go to your bathrooms, get any pharmaceutical products you've got, just mash them up <laughs> and smoke, snort, ingest, insert them as appropriate, and you'll enjoy this story a lot more. I don't think it will help. <laughs> 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 Yeah, it's time for the sinister sponge. This is the big one, boys. I mean, (laughs) this is the one that was pointed out in the completely useless encyclopedia as one of the weirdest Doctor Who stories ever. It is one of the weirdest Doctor Who stories ever. So to try and see this, I'm going to have to. I actually have to get up the um, TARDIS wiki because trying to make sense of this story in my own head um i can't do it so (laughs) so, um so i i do have a little bit of help with this one because trying to follow what happens is just yeah so basically the doctor sarah and harry arrive on the planet in scruta and those and as soon as they arrive a small green yellow cloud envelops sarah and carries her away struggling so Pretty good, Doctor Who. Companions split up. We're going to have two strands of the story, but no, <laughs> we're not going to have two strands of the story. The Doctor and Harry give chase, but they're ensnared by a chameleon tongue-like tentacles and are dragged into a huge red petals of a man-eating flower. So they narrowly escape the acid, and that's quite, yep, yeah, mm-hmm, um, by singing and shouting as life on Inscruta is unaccustomed to loud noises. So, the Doctor and Harry eventually find um, an old friend of the Doctor, Elkalor, the Inscrute leader, and he leads them inside his home, which is a large cabbage. And he fills them in on what's happened to Inscrute since the Doctor's last visit. Tell us, now. So, basically, all the males were stricken with a disease which caused their feathers to fall out, right? Their skin to turn translucent and their sensitivity to sound to worsen. At the same time, the female Inscrutes became less sensitive to sound, and they began holding mass meetings in the council hall where they would question their male's judgment and leadership with great shrillness and volume. The males discovered that the women had been hiding and telepathically communicating with a giant sponge. When the men objective, the women drove them from the city with ceaseless shouting and chattering. Now, Elkalor has to reject the doctor's offers of 
offer of help because his people's tradition forbids him from accepting aid. But however, there's a bit of a problem here. And Harry says this. He says, um, he says um, this affair does not concern you, says Elkalor. But it does, whispered Harry, and very directly, because the Doctor and Elkalor turned to face Harry, who'd become transparent. Oh, no. <laughs> so, um, so Elkalor has resigned himself to the Doctor's interference. So the Doctor goes back to the TARDIS, fetches some equipment, and Harry makes himself some earmuffs out of giant cabbage leaves. Is there body. a picture? I bet that's there so cute. There is not a picture. There should be a picture of that. Um, so, yes. Um, all the men gather in the centre of the cabbage patch to face their wives and daughters who bring who come banging pots and pans accompanied by the sponge. Sarah is among them, her face contorted into a snarl. But the doctor calls out in a throaty garbling noise and he and the sponge have a conversation. I have to read this paragraph out because it is just the most amazing thing ever. In fact, the doctor and the sponge were using Femazonian oropathy, a means of communication known to very few outside of Femazor, the gigantic sponge colony in Alpha Mardis 2. <laughs> so there we go. Um, when the, spon- the, the sponge um, refuses to tell the truth, the doctor confronts him with a rower, which is um, a small rodent, which is the enemy of sponges throughout the cosmos. And it's very lucky um, the doctor actually just dips into his pocket and pulls this out. So he, where he'd got this, no one knows, but that's fine. He'd got it. Um, and um, he then makes the sponge cooperate with him. Now, it turns out... Um, the sponges have um, male and female hormones, but because he went, um, this particular sponge um, should have been in confinement because um, young sponges are not able to deal with um, their imbalances and the young ones are quite angry, apparently, and um, difficult. So, But this one passed through a molecular disperser, which affected the sponge's male hormones, and this was an affliction it passed to the male inscrutes. So it became a bit more female and made the males all... Yeah. There, there's messages here. <laughs> um, so the sponge then telepathically controlled all the female inscrutes to do its bidding. The doctor agreed to teach the inscrutes the recipe for elixir, which would cure the hormonal affliction. And then the sponge released its telepathic control, and the doctor returned the sponge to Femazor. All was well, the males were back in control. And with Sarah Freed and Harry and the inscrutes cured, the doctor goes off to relax at the Lake of Sighs, where the fishing is said to be very good indeed. Wow. Uh, <laughs> um, yes. I've got notes. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's got notes. No uh, notes, yeah. Um, this, again, this one had um, very, very odd and rather beautiful artwork, um, but... Yeah, I mean, where do we start? I mean, it's just... 
yeah, but, um, you can't see this. Um, this is not making for good podcasting. But Mark and and um, Comrade are both holding up exciting examples of the strange <laughs> artwork for this story. I think the author might have a few issues with um, women's liberation um, and or indeed um, just women in general. I mean, their well, wives so. or their daughters or they're nothing at all. You know, yes, that's, mm-hmm. that's a bit of a thing. And they're all screeching harridans when, when as soon as they're allowed any kind of freedom and choose not to follow male judgment. Now, I'm not going to comment because I... <laughs> wow. But also, well, sort of looking, looking at this from, from today's point of view, we've got a sponge that is equal male and female. And this is in, an incredibly woke idea. So Doctor <laughs> Who is woke right from particularly even in an annual in 1976. So that's a good thing. Um, but obviously, its imbalance of hormones is not a, not necessarily a good thing. So <laughs> it's just a whole list of weirdness from l- people living in a giant cabbage patch Um the males who had feathers but have lost them and gone translucent. <laughs> this author is just throwing every idea he's ever had into the melting pot. To be fair, that sounds like a standard morning off day after Pride, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Insensitivity to noise, feathers everywhere. Everyone's looking a bit mm-hmm. translucent, yeah. So what did you guys make of <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm picking up on one of the less weird points here, but you were talking about the sort of giant slugs and snails being a preoccupation of the writers. There are two other instances in the annual stories of the Doctor spending the night in a giant cabbage. Do you know, I wondered, because you've mentioned that on one of these before, and you're like, and I, I was like, oh, this must be the one Mark was talking about. Are you telling me there is another one? Yeah, it's two more. There was a William Hartnell one, wasn't yeah, it? There's two William Hartnell ones where um, he ends up spending the night in a giant cabbage. So there, there is a sort of cabbage agenda going on somewhere. I <laughs> imagine um, that there is the, the, there's, there's a writer. You know, like Roald Dahl would write in a shed at the bottom of his garden, and yeah. I sort of picture a writer in his shed smoking a pipe and looking out for inspiration and seeing maybe a row of cabbages and thinking. I know. <laughs> Wouldn't it be amazing if there was a giant cabbage that people could live in? And three separate writers coming up with this uh, with this idea. That's that's uh, that's what I imagine happened anyway. Or maybe yeah. it's the same writer. <laughs> maybe <laughs> coming back years later, thinking, "Oh, they haven't had a giant cabbage for ten years. Let's throw one of those back in." <laughs> oh, the slugs have been having to get my cabbages again. Oh God, I must write that Doctor Who book. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I lost it during this one. Like, it, like, <laughs> like uh, Dan reads it absolutely fantastically again. And the sound design, which I've got to say, is that's David Darlington, who's an absolute genius. The sound design on all these is fantastic, especially the hybrid stories, like the comic book ones. We've got a sort of, mm. it's not quite a full audio drama. It's not quite narration. It's sort of great. But there was... Um, the, the gobbling sound which uh, the slug made and the... very rude yeah I mean it, it, I don't know if it sounded like a very rude activity or it sounded like the impression when we were schoolboys we used to do of yes, a very rude activity wasn't it it's just grab one cheek in one hand and work away yeah it's uh, 
it's that was yeah i started to completely lose it i got a bit hysterical and one of my favorite lines from this is harry cut a pair of leathery earmuffs out of the cabbage with his knife and was determined to be there when they confronted the females and the sponge and i was like i don't know what this story is but it's giving me a fascinating insight into the heterosexual experience where i frankly <laughs> i had no idea i mean i stand by you um... <laughs> An Alpha Mardis 2. I was like, Alpha Mardis 2 is just, it's absolutely wonderful. He's flicked through a book and thought, Alpha Centauri, TARDIS, Metabolist 3. All right, Alpha Mardis 2. I'm like, okay, whatever. Deadline's a deadline. It's so prosaic, but it's just beautiful. A miserable TARDIS and Mardis. I also wonder if, as well as having problem with women, he also didn't like kids because when we learn the about the society of sponges is that uh, they they're locked up until they reach maturity <laughs> because uh, because some people believe that that they're insane, but actually they're just born amoral and oversensitive, like some people on Twitter. So it's, uh, they're locked away for their own uh, for, until they're adults and useful members of society, and then they're let out of the pen when their hormones have balanced. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't like kids, doesn't like women. <laughs> He must have been a joy to be around. <laughs> what a, what a catch. <laughs> How did you feel about this one, Denise? <laughs> well, I mean, you get used to a certain degree of it's written by men for boys. You know, that's a common thing of all of the annuals that we've looked at. And you always have to bear that in mind. Um, and yes, of its time, obviously, there were certain types of men who just believed that women's livers were strident, noisy, you know, disturbing the status quo. And uh, yeah, it's, it's of its time. Um, would be interesting to hear what Sarah thought about the whole experience. <laughs> yeah. History does not relate to us. But, uh, you know, at least, you know, what would she do with the transparent Harry anyway? But... <laughs> yeah, we, we have to be kind about these things, but uh, it's a bonkers story and it's got mad ideas which sort of make up for the dark, dark heart of the writer. <laughs> I, I don't know how it came to exist, but I'm very glad it did. <laughs> <laughs> I totally agree, and it has led to some very entertaining DMs in the Trap One uh, and Audio Annual group, if I may. Uh, when we were planning the podcast, Sai said, "I wonder if we can use femazonian or or, or therapy as a meaning of as a means of communication known to very few outside Femizor, the giant sponge colony in Alpha Mardis Two. Mark replied, "I try not to use it around the house in case it makes Mel too noisy and I have to move into a cabbage." <laughs> and then Denise revealed. I got evicted from the sponge collective back in the day because I tried to smuggle boys in. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, you know, sinister sponge. It's got to be the king. Sorry, you, you're probably more familiar with all the annuals. But for me, this has got to be the king of annual stories. I think this is just the the pinnacle of the bonkers annual. I think it's the one that everyone would pick out as... Um, everything that you don't like but really secretly love about the Doctor Who annuals, where they kind of get Doctor Who, but they don't get Doctor <laughs> Who at all. And 
they just go off on these these sort of quirky stories just out of nowhere that yeah i i think there's a reason why it's sort of the one that is held up as the the most annually annual story <laughs> that there is <laughs> we should, this one has been released before this uh, yes. there was, mm-hmm. one of the collections was caught was named for this story the sinister, sinister sponge because it's also an excellent name for a story isn't it yes. you hear that and you immediately want to know more about the sinister sponge how is it sinister and uh, and so on um, I once found one under my sink in the kitchen, actually. It had been there a while. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and to be honest, we couldn't have had The Amazing World of Doctor Who without having this one back in yeah. in place. Mm-hmm. It would have been a whole lesser experience without it being in there. Sinister Stodge, yeah. Now, now I'm able to download CD, vinyl... In 2023, that's incredible. <laughs> it's a thoroughly absorbing story. Okay, I'm going to flip <laughs> this table if there is one more plan, I swear to God. <laughs> well, I think we've squeezed the life out of that one. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> I know. I'll go to my room and think about what I've done. It's bringing on a headache, or maybe it's a neuronic nightmare. Ooh. Ooh. Who knows? So, okay, so this is the next one, and this is another one based on a comic strip. Um, after the, uh, we will, we're now coming, coming down after our trip on the Sinister Sponge. So in this one, um, and this is read by Jeffrey, this is one of those uh, hybrid ones, so it's um, they're all t- Jeffrey Beavers, Dan Stark, and Louise Jameson are all playing the different parts. So the TARDIS has landed on a tiny planet that's marooned at a, cr- at a crossroads of infinity in the eye of a cosmic hurricane again. But the Doctor and Sarah have noticed that as they were materialising, Harry has disappeared. And as they notice this, he suddenly materialises out of nowhere and says that he's got diverted. And given that the illustrations in the annual, that Harry has now got a blonde mane of hair, a lovely thick moustache and a medallion, I would only guess <laughs> that he'd been diverted to downtown San Francisco in 1976. But, <laughs> um, but before the Doctor can, uh, inter- uh, can, can question him further, they're interrupted as the TARDIS is picked up and carried off by a group of strange, pallid humanoids. Um, emerging from the TARDIS, the crew are greeted by a neuroid called Schizos, who tells them that they're in a place called Scarol. And on the other side of the planet, there's a place called Lectra, where they have, they're keeping herds of humanoids who are being tested for their receptivity to neuronic energy. Because it turns out that these marooned neuroids need other beings to absorb the excess of their neuronic energy, um, even though it will kill the recipient. So they're farming people to basically take on their baggage. Um, the, they capture the, the crew struggle because they want no part of it, but they're overcome. Schizos says he wants to test the TARDIS crew uh, for their receptivity and see how receptive they are to being filled with all this neuronic energy. Um, and starting with Sarah, um, and they're strapped to a machine, and for, but as the process begins, the Doctor has a plan and he urges Sarah and Harry to join hands, thus overloading the circuits and the, machi- the whole machine explodes. They all go back to the TARDIS. Everything seems fine, but the Doctor interrogates Harry further about you know where he was earlier. And then Harry reveals in a slow transformation 
that he too is a neuroid. <gasps> Luckily, not all neuroids are evil. Hashtag not all neuroids. Um, and is <laughs> uh, he's actually from Lex, Le- Lectra, where they've worked out how to siphon off their energy, their neuronic energy, harmlessly into the biosphere instead. But he needed to disguise himself as Harry to get on board and seek help. So they all return to Lectra, switch off the, the beams and free all the humanoids. And uh, and they release Harry from his uh, momentarily uh, his prison, uh, who 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 declares, "There's nothing like a short spell in irons to make a man out of you." Something well, he presumably <laughs> learned in the navy. I'm not sure. Um, I would guess so, or, or public school, perhaps. Or public school, who knows? And thus ends the neuronic nightmare. There we are. You know, it's not a sinister sponge. Uh, this is uh, where am I? Where am I on? Where am I on this? Uh, yeah, I thought it was good. Uh, uh, I, I particularly like you, Mark. You were saying earlier about the cliffhanger of the a vampire, faceless vampire girl looking up. In this one, the uh, the transformation or the reveal that Harry is in fact a neuroid, which is really, really beautifully illustrated here. Mm. Um, that is pure cliffhanger material, especially like Zygons was in the last season before this. So that kind of thing feels like a really good cliffhanger moment um sounds really good on audio and again i, I really particularly liked uh dan starkey's harry is it's just fantastic mm-hmm. um so yeah I, I enjoyed this one it was again it's um you, you sort of wonder how it's going to work adapting a comic and this comic is so odd and and the, the look of sarah and harry they just look I mean, to be fair, they they all get an upgrade, so they're all a bit sexier, or, or seventies idea of sexier. So, you know, uh, but their outfits are changing uh, between every single shot. Harry sort of got moustache, hasn't got moustache. It's a sort of an older, grizzled kind of Lee Majors, six million dollar man style hunk. Then he's your your average medallion man. Sarah and at the end, like he's got a model. really beautiful stripy green blazer. Yeah, and then at the end, yeah. he looks he looks like um the guy who plays Elgin in um in um the Green Death, um Tony Adams. Yes, yes, he does. <laughs> Harry goes Bizarrely. through. Yep. Yeah, he goes through many transformations. In fact, there's even one shot where he actually there's one shot where he looks like our Harry, um, but the rest of it, he's Mister he's Mister Seventies. Yeah, quite dishy, uh, you know. Yeah, and Sarah man. looks like um, what's her face from the second Dalek film. Oh yes, Jenny yes, in that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. What, most alarmingly, though, in one shot, uh, Tom Baker looks—is uh, this just me? Looks remarkably like Colin Baker. He does. <laughs> he does. He does. <laughs> Wearing, and it looks like he's standing next to Villa from Blake Seven. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so the likenesses are all over the shop here. Um, but but um, the neuroids, the neuroids, great, mm-hmm. are incredible. They've got with their uh, fire, yeah. fire. Yeah, it just mm-hmm. looks like it. Just they're just like guys with like sort of cadaverous guys with their heads on fire. They look so cool and spooky. It's a little bit like. Um, like the villains from the Flux, isn't it? Yes, yeah, with the eyes and yeah, they've got a touch yeah, skull-like faces. Yeah, yeah, they look fantastic. It's a really, yeah, it's a really great design. If they pulled that off on TV, that would look great. Um, but yeah, fun. I think a fun one. I kind of enjoy that one. I like the fact that there's just going for a companion is actually revealed to be a, a villain. Is that's a really scary idea. That's very 
Mm. It feels very it's exciting. It's not used very often, is it? No, it's quite scary. Mm. So that yeah. is Sarah suddenly turning around with a gun in the android invasion, isn't it? Yeah, and yeah. Yes. That, that kind of feel. Yeah. And actually to have a twist like that in one of the comic strips is quite rare. That's because yeah. they're usually quite basic stories, but this one feels like a cut above, I think. Yeah. Something these stories give us, which we never got on TV in this era, is is this group of characters inside the TARDIS. Yes. So you don't get any sort both, of great, great pictures of that, do we? But yeah. um, you, you, you do get the sense of some of the controls and the roundels and stuff behind them. So, yeah. so that's quite a nice thing as well. It's really nice to get more Harry because, again, he was my team you know i was still with liz sladen but he you know when i started watching it was three that, that's mm. so, so it's always lovely to have more more harry because he's, he's what a just fantastic companion so yeah even though he looks like you know an aftershave model in all of them it's uh it's nice to see him well he wasn't a bad looking lad was he, he? are you kidding ian martin gorgeous my goodness yeah. yeah i've been looking through some old convention photos got some nice ones of him oh yeah. i'll have to get them out sometime beautiful man yeah beautiful man mm-hmm. yeah really really was i think my favorite line is is after the tardis has been carried to the uh to the evil layer and uh, the leader goes ah so you've decided to come out and the doctor goes why not i'm doctor who <laughs> 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 and dan Starkey plays that absolutely brilliantly yeah. he does yeah yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Fantastic! Is that, is that is that swagger you were talking about, Mark? Earlier, that kind of there is a kind of confidence in it, a sort of mm-hmm. about this. It's great. Yeah, right from Doctor Who. Yeah. So the final story then is the mission, which uh, which starts with a nice little prologue where Tamric, the Bremtonian, who is over eighty five feet tall. <laughs> Uh, which I love that you can sort of conjure with that sort of thing in the annuals. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one that we previously talked about a few years ago, Denise, where they met an alien who had legs the width of motorways, <laughs> which is a really lovely descriptive, uh, you know, kind of thing for kids and stuff to try and imagine. Um, I imagine he had legs the width of motorways and two hard shoulders. But, uh, <laughs> Uh, so Tamric, um, he is delivering a robot which is eighty-five feet tall with a radio mast, uh, which is almost as high again uh, on top of him. And the illustrations in the Amazing World book seem like the robot is heavily influenced by the K one giant robot. Um, his uh, his face and uh, plasty metal body and feet and legs and everything are, uh, are very evocative of uh, of the giant robot. So, so Tamric has one job, and that is to deliver the robot, switch it on, and fly off home. Um, but he spent six years flying to this planet um, where he's got to drop the robot off. The robot is a bit like the mechanoids from the chase in that, that he's, he's going to there and, and sort of terraform the planet, or in this case, actually move the planet to a slightly more sort of beneficial orbit for, uh, for the Bremtonians. Uh, but he decides first he'd like to stretch his massive legs because he's been in space for six years and he's promptly killed by lava. Uh, so we then flash forward 100 million years um, when the Doctor, Harry and Sarah again are visiting the planet Tyrano so the Doctor can study a new type of power that the Tyranians are working on by mixing zircon gas with clarium. The description of the Tyranians make them sound a lot like dolphins 
Uh, they don't actually come out and say they look like dolphins, but uh, to, to me, that was everything sort of pointed towards that with the fins and the fact they always look like smiling and that kind of thing. Um, and there's a quite some nice world building here, I think. So they're they're like kind of at a disco with them or something. They're they're dancing. Sarah's dancing away with with two Tyranians, and uh, they're being drizzled on from the ceiling, but. Uh, Oh, that was a nice touch, wasn't it? Yeah. Which uh, the Tyrannians absorb, but with humans, it's just like uh, literally they describe it as water for ducks' back, so that they're not sort of wet from this drizzle or anything. But because they're amphibious, I think it's, it's keeping the Tyrannians alive. Harry's using a sort of VR headset, which uh, like VR must have been very much either in its infancy or or just kind of a, a theory at this point. He's learning all about Tyrannian history which is a nice way of inserting the exposition that we find out that the Tyranians are uh, interstellar travellers. And one of the planets they've visited is Bremtos, which is now inhabited by shambling simple giants. But as we know, the Bremtonians built the giant robot. Meanwhile, by chance, the, the correct combination of radio signals is produced by all the activity in the atmosphere and the robot is activated. And they sort of uh, they, they nicely link this to the theory that, you know, an infinite number of monkeys could could replicate the works of, of Shakespeare. So just uh, the sheer amount of kind of electronic activity on the planet activates the robot, um, which uh, has been there for million years, millions of years, while in the meantime... Brimptos has had a, a war which has reduced the inhabitants to mindless parodies of the creatures that they'd once been. The next day, Sarah has been enjoying a a sense massage. Uh, I mean, this you're talking about oscillating, reverberating units. Uh, she's yeah. blushing slightly. She declared it one of the most exhilarating experiences she'd ever had. Okay. That's filthy. <laughs> that <is> fil- <laughs> <laughs> they sneaked that into a into a kids' annual in 1976. Well, I love it. Well, uh, for the I think the girl totally deserved some me time. <laughs> <laughs> She's been through a lot in this book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I need to so, so rude, and I'm not going to go. <laughs> <laughs> So the robot starts tearing the place up, and uh, the, obviously the doctor, uh, the, the doctor wants to help. So he takes, uh, he's flown by heliboat to the place where the robot first appeared. I, I love this. They they use it to burrow into the soil, where they find themselves in the giant cockpit of, of Tamric's spaceship. Just the imagery of this, of this helicopter or heliboat flying around this cockpit and and sort of hitting the giant buttons in in the ship to to activate the screens and things like that and sort of flying past screens to read them i think he's he's very visually inventive uh, you know and all that sort of yeah, thing so the doctor like sort of uh, yeah. yeah the doctor manages to figure out the the code they sort of decode the language to send the right instructions to stop the robot from uh, basically it's going to bit like the Daleks and the Dalek invasion of Earth is going to turn the planet into a bit of a rocket to say to, to move out of orbit so that it will become inhabitable or habitable for the Bremtonians sooner than, uh, than, than normally it would have been. So yeah, the, the day is saved and the, the doctor's got a giant robot to investigate. So, uh, so he's quite happy as well um, as is Sarah. So uh, yeah, I thought this was a terrific story. I think this one actually is a really strong story and yeah. actually a really lovely story. It's it's quite sophisticated with the with the prelude and then the menace coming back millions of years later when it's been completely forgotten and the idea of a race 
sort of reverting to primitivism. I mean, that's really Terry Nation idea, isn't it? It's a really um, sort of forgotten technology and all of this. Yeah. And But just the, like you said, Mark, the world building on this one is incredible. And it actually felt quite sophisticated and, and a really lovely society that had been created. And don't come away from an annual story thinking this is this is actually good very often but this one i think is genuinely a great story it's a proper science fiction story isn't yeah. it it's one of the ones that maybe would inspire the readers to go and look at some other things to look at some eyes of Kazimov or something like that i, I do like the fact that they've used the fact there is a, a giant robot in there I'm, like you said mark i'm glad in the in the annual they, they've put an illustration of a giant robot because that just helps you mm-hmm. into it and maybe you know maybe that is a, a sort of archetype of a robot they used back then although i do also like the image of the guy i'm fairly sure that image of the guy is charlton heston i can't it does look yeah, kind of like it, does it doesn't like it, it doesn't yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well he's supposed to be uh taller than the robot isn't he i think oh yes he is isn't he yeah, just, he's uh, yeah ex- extraordinary yeah but yeah, the fact that obviously his spaceship has to be that big as well, so big that they can fly a helicopter around in it, is is, is lovely. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been difficult to realise in 1976 on screen, but in a in a written storybook or hearing it in this audiobook, it just it just sounds awesome. Yeah. Yeah, the things with things being of a massively different scale often come up in the Doctor Who annuals and things, don't they? But of course, mm. it's so difficult to realise on TV that it never happens. But then in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, there's a bit about the two warring planets that decide that they're going to have their battle on Earth. And so they zoom into Earth's atmosphere and accidentally get swallowed by a small dog. <laughs> 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 you know, so that's an, it's a general sort of interesting idea. Some things are just too massive and some things are just too tiny. I like the line, Sarah felt hopeless, frustrated, like a blind woman in a plane that is fast running out of fuel and must find somewhere to land. It's so specific, isn't it? It's a very specific fear. (laughs) 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 Unlike being in a car that's running out of petrol on a a deserted (laughs) island where there's no petrol station. (laughs) (laughs) Because if she's feeling frustrated, then uh, you know we know how she can uh, how she can relax. <laughs> she can relax well, yes, yeah. <laughs> senso massage. I'll have what yeah. she's. Maybe she yeah. Maybe she's going for another one after all that fear as well. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it's just a nice strong story to finish the collection off, which is is really good. Yeah, nice and expansive and imaginative, and you know, like you said, like playing with scale, all this, all this kind of, you know, that's what this stuff can, you can do on, you know, audio or in, in in stories. You can just sort of play around with it and discover and expand the amazing world of Doctor Who. Mm, mm-hmm. What an amazing world it is! That was fairly amazing. Mm-hmm. I'm amazed. You amazed? <laughs> I'm amazed we got through it with our sanity intact. <laughs> I'm not sure mine are after reading yeah, the Sinister Yeah, no, the Sinister Sponge, sponge that's going to... If you've been affected by <laughs> in this podcast... Well, I think we decided the Sinister Sponge was the only one that was canon as well, didn't we? <laughs> it's canon sure. I would like to canonise the mission. I think that deserves, deserves a place somewhere in yeah. Season 12B or wherever mm-hmm. we are. 
I'm quite, I'm going to canonize Blonde Harry. I kind of like Blonde Harry. Looks good. <laughs> yeah. What a hunk. I like the idea that the, the doctor has live rodents in his pockets that presumably <laughs> live on jelly babies. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you're going to have sweeties in your pockets, you're going to attack. Maybe she, maybe this is where he got this idea of having, having a, a talking cabbage as a companion. Maybe this is where maybe. this was all heading. Maybe this yeah. was, it was foreshadowing of the Tom Baker yeah. master plan. World distributors <laughs> ahead of their time, <laughs> just seeding these ideas year by year. So yeah, what a book and what yeah. a talking book! I think this has been one of my favourites. So I've loved revisiting this, and it's um, like for you, Conrad, it's a slice of my childhood as well. And it's yeah. just lovely to go back and just leaf through the book and be sort of taken back by just by some of the incredible typefaces that they chose to yeah. headline the um headline the articles with and things like that and the photographs and just yeah and the weird stories it's yeah it's it's a it is an amazing world isn't it <laughs> yeah i mean i'd, I'd love to put um, blonde harry in the show notes <laughs> oh yes oh don't worry about it. yeah good luck with the, the, or the yeah, how to illustrate this one mark in the in the twitter feed and not We'll have to send our send our favourite photographs mm-hmm. in here, um, but it's so, also, also it's worth saying the like there's the whole promotion stuff. If you're interested in it, um, the, a very recent issue of Doctor Magazine uh, magazine it was issue five eight nine, the one with uh, Hartnell and Troughton on the on the on the cover. That's got a, a lovely article about the uh, Amazing World of Doctor Two promotion. And if you've got Face of Evil DVD in your collection, there's PDFs of all of the whole annual, all the cards, all the promotional stuff in there as well. So if you fancy having a, a deep dive into that. Mm. I just want the poster shelf. of the cover. I, I would love oh, that. I really kind of need that, actually. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, that um, album cover is is ripe for the framing. That is just... Isn't it beautiful. just... Yeah. It's a beautiful piece of artwork by Chris Achilleos really mm. incredible likenesses of of yeah. Tom Baker and Liz Sladen it's yeah. really really good it's my favourite piece of Doctor Who artwork if I had to choose mm-hmm. one and one only that would be the one for me that is well it just sums up Doctor Who at this point doesn't to it to me yeah 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 mm-hmm. yeah it's, it's fantastic and I, and I think we've looked at the, the some of the other annual collections and it, and it jumps around you, you tend to get stories that run the full gamut of the first six Doctors there's something about the fact that this is all from 1976 that, that really immerses you in, in that particular time. Yeah. It's, it's all the aliens up to that point. Uh, you know, there's the, the sort of run through the first four doctors and it's, it, yeah, it's, I think, I, I think I slightly prefer this. It's, it's, it's a slightly more, yeah, kind of immersive experience in that way, I think. Yeah. Worthy of the diamond logo. Oh, for sure. And it's a gorgeous coloured logo on the cover of this one. It really Mm -hmm. is. Well, thank you very much for listening. Uh, I will put links in the show notes to where you can uh, can order The Amazing World of Doctor Who CD and where you can find all of us on Twitter. You can find all our previous episodes at trapone.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow the podcast at trapone underscore. Join us next time when another team will be discussing something else from the amazing world of Doctor Who. Thank you very much. Goodbye. 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 Bye.